following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And And this this is is Box Box Office Office 30. 30. Quiet, please. We're doing black for camera, everybody, and there's a lot of dialogue, so we need your total cooperation. Also, keep in mind there are live snakes in this shot, so we need you to be very, very careful. Hello, hello, welcome to Box Office 30 for September 1990. I'm, as usual, joined by my good buddy, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you? What's going on, Pete? I'm doing pretty well. Um, You know, (laughs) you and I were chatting the other day and we were sort of saying that, and I think you hit the nail right on the head, that we kind of have this like perfect storm of stuff going on in our life that has like pushed this podcast recording this month to like the brink (laughs) to to the zero hour more or less (laughs) yeah and and, i mean maybe i'll let you um kind of talk to it because i think you um had the perfect breakdown (laughs) of of everything happening so basically I, i look at it like this this particular movie we both have a total lack of interest in actually watching the movie plus it's like you just moved, started a new job, have a new house. Uh, I'm finishing up graduate school and, you know, managing the new semester at the college that I work at. This has kind of been the perfect storm of procrastination for the two of us this month. <laughs> that it, it's sort of like, OK, we got to do this one. It's, you know, it's every, you know, every now and again, we're going to realize there are certain movies that though they were the best that month. We're probably not going to like them or we're going to have a hard time <laughs> wanting to watch them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, we'll we'll get into it. And and the funny part, as, as we sort of mentioned, I think, in the previous episode, is that this was just like a funny one where it, it automatically kicked off two of the um, box office 30 rules, which number one, it was, you know, second to the top movie, which we've already reviewed. And then kind of the other funky thing with it is that it's a movie that neither one of us have seen. So, you know, obviously we did our little prequel episode um, for the first part of the month, which totally threw off the fact that we have this whole new setup where we're supposed to be doing, you know, a couple things on one episode and then the review on the other episode. So now we're back to like episode one format where we're doing everything in in one shot here today. But um, it's all good. And, and, And here's the funny thing, like this particular movie. I would assume, you know, the Retro Network audience probably also has never heard of this film (laughs) and, you know, might be reluctant to listen to it. But I hope you'll stay tuned for the commentary I have in particular about this film that (laughs) might just make it worth it to listen to us. Yeah, well, that's just the thing, you know, and I'm hoping that that's the case. And again, yeah, I mean, obviously, this isn't like the biggest name on the list. I think I looked up in a separate location that ironically despite the fact that this is number two for september it's like number 33 overall for 1990 so it's not like the biggest hit of 1990 by any stretch of the imagination but uh you know like i said you and i didn't see it and for better or worse we have now (laughs) yeah and we'll discuss that 
Um, but that actually reminds me of uh, something that happened with me this week. And I, I think I told you about this the other day, but uh, I had a really close call um, because for the first time ever in my life, I had Taco Bell. Ooh. <laughs> for, so, from from someone that hasn't eaten fast food since uh, <laughs> since 2004 when I had a bad experience at Wendy's. How did this go, Taco Bell boy? Yeah, well, so this was, you know, as you say, I've got a new job and I've been doing freelance for well over a decade now. So getting back into that office environment has been fun and different and interesting and, you know, all that sort of thing. But it also means I'm doing like bago lunch again. Um, and the bago lunch that I brought with me the other day kind of like, I don't know, I think it had hit its prime or something. <laughs> I had gone past expiration dates or something. So I was uh -oh. like, uh, yeah, I'm going to chuck that. So uh, the place where I work happens to have a Taco Bell on site. And I was like, you know what? Let me tempt fate. Let me give this a shot. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> I've, been, right. uh, I've been I've been channeling Kelly Clarkson all day. I'm, I'm like, what does it do? Make you make you stronger. stronger. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so okay just so everyone knows <laughs> uh pete pete works at a college campus and so a college campus fast food restaurant versus a traditional fast food <laughs> restaurant isn't always the same caliber like when we were an undergrad in college we had a nathan's on campus yes. and it was not it was not like your real nathan's i remember one time i had like a like it was you know uh, you know, ribs or like, or beef steak or like that. <laughs> I had food poisoning for like four nice. days. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, you're here. You made it. I don't need. I don't need to do this episode by myself. Thank goodness. So, all right, <laughs> that's good. Taco Bell and postcards from the edge. We're all good. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, this episode obviously is probably going to end up. Maybe a little shorter than our normal batch, but I say we just dive right in and head into our box office 30. All right, Pete, let me know the information on this movie, because I'm dying to know how this was the number two movie of September <laughs> of 1990. Yes. So first of all, it's worth pointing out that Ghost is still number one in the box office. We've mentioned that. Um, but it did do 36 million in business, which is not an insignificant number. It's actually more, of course, than our, our second place movie. Um, and it's a little more than half of its previous month's number. So again, we've talked Ghost does big, big money. Um, you know, if you if you loop out Home Alone, it's the number one movie for 1990. So it's still going strong, you know, in the very next month here. Um, so then coming in at a really not so close second is our <laughs> featured movie this month, which is Postcards from the Edge, which came out on September 14th. It grosses twenty one million dollars in September. It opens up number one um, spot for the weekend it opened up on. I think it probably went back to something like Ghost the, the week after. Um, and it goes on to gross just over $39 million total. So if the information I'm working at is accurate, it looks like it only has a domestic release and that that release is only six weeks long. 
They do not go international. They don't do one of these like multi multi week releases. I thought that was a little odd. It, it feel like it's like shortchanged for like, you know, maybe not the biggest name movie ever, but that's like a big pair of big name actresses. Even at that time, I know Meryl Streep then is not Meryl Streep now, you know, <laughs> a goddess of Hollywood. But, you know, I mean, Shirley MacLaine, her Mike Nichols film. Isn't I mean, that quick to be in and out in six weeks? It is, and also there's a tremendous amount of cameos of big-name actors in this film as well, which was very shocking, and I'm surprised. I didn't watch the trailer, but I feel like I want to go back and watch the trailer, which I did, <laughs> because I bet you they showcase all of these big-name actors that appear around this film as well. Yeah, I had seen something in doing a little bit of research about this movie. I didn't want to spend too, too much time, but I did a little bit. And I think somewhere I saw it mentioned that they had a bunch of folks come in to do table readings just to help out with the table readings and then basically kind of like created or expanded or gave them parts from that. So I think that's how we end up with some of these weird little cameos, because the cameos in this are bizarre. You know, I mean, like really at its core, this movie's about like two, three ish people, you know, (laughs) you know. And like, you know, as far as like pure on screen time, um, but there's just like a bunch of other like little bit parts in this that are just like funny, funny things. And we'll get to that. Um, But yeah, I don't know. It just seemed odd to me. And the only thing I can say is that, again, it just didn't do tremendous numbers. Like it had overall pretty decent critical reception. I think like, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes or something, it's still like 89 percent. Um, you know, something like that. So it had like an okay critical reception, even at the time. Like I've found some old um, New York Times uh, review of it and it was fine. You know, they were, they were, you know, praising it. Um, But the box office like falls off. Like that opening weekend was something like 7 million. And then like the next week was like six and then like five and then like two or three. And like that was, you know, so it it just tilted off. So I, I don't know if it just, you know, other stuff starts coming out in the lead up to like the holiday sort of thing, just, you know, knocks it out of the theater or something like that. I don't know. I was having a hard time finding any more information on that, but it just struck me as a little bit funny because it goes on to like, you know, like bunch and bunch, a bunch of nominations. And I think Meryl Streep ends up winning two awards, not American awards. I think like one was like a London film um, award and something else, but she was nominated for like an Oscar and the movie was nominated for Oscars and other categories. So it was funny that it was kind of a, a shorter lived one than some of the other uh, films that we've had. So this one is kind of like eked its way into not only <laughs> the 1990 numbers, but our, our po- podcast here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. It feels like based on the cast alone, you know, and especially the two leads that this should have come out in like December as a Oscar kind of a, a play. And after seeing it, I could see why they may have released it a little bit earlier because it's got it's it's fine. It's fine. But we'll talk about it. <laughs> so heading down the list, and I know that like you want to like crack me in the head when I'm saying this, but <laughs> the next biggest movie that came out in September on the list at number six position is Goodfellas. <laughs> and uh, anybody that listened into our, our um, earlier in the month episode, I threw a little bit of a Goodfellas um, quote in there for us. Um, just to pay it a little homage since we uh, kind of left that one on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. It, it, it's a shame because 
Goodfellas I could have seen us really diving into. But listen, it is what it is. You know, <laughs> whatever. I mean. Well, I, you tell us. So you, the listeners, if you want to amend the uh, the Constitution that came along with Box Office 30, if you'd rather us on certain months like this, if Mike and I are like ho-hum on a, on a backup movie, move on to something like that. You let us know and we could always go that route. Otherwise, if you uh, want to see us painfully try and stick it through whatever else we <laughs> have necessarily lined up, you let us know about that too. Go hit us up on our socials. I, we'd love to hear about that. <laughs> at, at least October's got March for death. Okay, I could, I could go into that one. All right. <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll get our little... Um, Seagal fix, which I'm I'm actually looking forward to talking about. <laughs> oh, so wow, this is that itch. I'm just I'm kind of cheating and looking ahead. So November is Home Alone, which will rock. That will be yes. awesome. But then December, because Home Alone is still number one, we got to sit through three hours of Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! And all the uh, white people saves indigenous people cool 2020 perspective that comes with that oh man i, I might need i might need a month to watch that movie yes oh, boy. <laughs> so anyway back to september 1990 we've got some other ones on there we've mentioned some of these but we've got um presumed innocent flatliners dark man i think we covered those a little bit in the in the past months here another one that pops up uh this month is death warrant um do you remember that movie at all is death warrant uh Charles Bronson? Uh, I do believe it's either him or... Uh, oh, no, it's um, Jean-Claude or, Van Damme. Is it Van Damme? Oh, yeah, it's Van Damme. Okay, yeah. All right. Yes. <laughs> I definitely remember seeing that one um, when I was younger, too. <laughs> um, we've got a bunch of other ones in here, and there's some I feel like we've mentioned and some maybe not as much. I'm trying to kind of keep my eyes out for ones that popped up specifically in, in September because I feel like there's a lot of really strong... Um, going August once here, kind of taking up the middle of the list. You know, you've got um, obviously Die Hard still going from um, July. You've got the Exorcist 3. <laughs> you've got Air America. You know, we've got all these like uh, funny little things in the middle here. A couple other known ones. Another one I would have, Air America would have been another good one to do. But again, <laughs> of course, that's an August one, though. So I don't think that would have counted no, either. And that one's that was down the list here. Um, but some other September ones, and I'm not necessarily placing these, are Narrow Margin, Hardware, Funny About Love, Pacific Heights. Any of those ringing a bell for you? Pacific Heights, yes. Funny About Love, yes. Uh, if I go further down the list, I, this one's kind of caught my eye here. White Hunter, Blackheart. It just, <laughs> I don't know what that's all about, but it's, it's, it's a Clint Eastwood film. <laughs> sure it is. Look at that. Wow, that's weird. I don't know. It's a weird title. Um, I don't know. Uh, Slumber Party Massacre 3. Ooh, that's kind of fun. <laughs> the Boyfriend School. Ooh, Dark Angel. I have never heard of that either. State it's of funny. Grace I mean, I've heard of. Yeah, there's stuff in here that I feel like we haven't seen or haven't paid attention to before that are like, even just based on the titles, like Jesus of Montreal. <laughs> like, according to this, that came out in May. Mm -hmm. um but i don't remember seeing that or talking about that necessarily it seems like we would have noticed a title like that <laughs> yeah it had a little bit of a resurgence i guess in september now here's an interesting note there's a movie that's way down the list the king of new york yes which 
it's a Christopher Walken film. I am, <laughs> I am shocked, shocked that in the end of September, this movie only made two hundred and forty six thousand dollars and only grossed two point five million in its entire run. That's yeah, crazy. it seems odd because I'm pretty sure that's a movie that like not only that I've seen, but like I know other people have seen. So it does seem weird. The cult. Um, it's like a cult classic. And yeah, then, I mean, the only thing I'll say is is looking further into that, it says the widest release that it had was 119 theaters. So the only thing I can think of is maybe that came out in like an indie sort of release. I guess. So. Um, and therefore didn't do that sort of thing. And maybe like, as you say, kind of like, you know, especially because it's Christopher Walken, you know, <laughs> kind of picked up steam then in like home video release or, um, you know, something there down the road. Because it does so, seem a little funny for it to be quite so quiet. <laughs> Not necessarily the bottom of the list, but the second to the bottom is Miller's Crossing. Have you ever seen Miller's Crossing? God, it does sound familiar. It's a gangster movie. I think it's by the Coen brothers. It is probably, you know, next to Goodfellas and The Godfather, probably one of the best mobster movies ever made. Like, bar none. It's really, really good. It's a, it's a terrific, yes, the Coen brothers. And it's a terrific film. I believe it's about the Irish mob, and it's fantastic. But it's shocking that this movie, which came out on September 21st, only gets $73,000 in its opening release and grosses $5 million by the time of its full run. And it was in 289 theaters. Wow. Yeah, so another one that's kind of like funky. And this is interesting because I don't feel like we've necessarily run into this with um, other films before. Like usually the films for you and I that are at the bottom of the list, we're like, what the heck is this? You yeah. know? These are ones that are, you know, at least ringing bells here. But it is funny that they're, you know, essentially opening at um, very tiny sort of releases. And actually, as I'm looking at it, it's opening release, like you said, 28,202 was at one theater. So, yeah. uh, uh, you know, again, and I... I this might be early on in, in Cohen brothers um, releases. Um, I don't remember exactly when they kind of became a bigger household name, um, but maybe that accounts for it. Maybe this is something that's real, real early for them. And it, you know, they are opening it somewhere locally or something like that. I could be talking totally out of place, but you know, yeah, it just seems like a little um, funny. Yeah, it, it is. It's surprising. I mean, like, I mean, th their previous film was Raising Arizona. And then, you know, they have, you know, Barton Fink, the Hudsucker Proxy, which I don't remember seeing. Oh, God, I, I love that. <laughs> I, I think their biggest movie up to this point was Fargo. And then they had Big Lebowski right after that. So this is early on, other than Raising Arizona, which is which is a very popular film, too. Yeah, again, uh, Hudsucker indie... Proxy, uh, bizarre name, but super super well worth a watch uh, it's, really uh, actually oh yeah like as far as like those kind of like little bit like weirder out there sort of movies go that's definitely up in like my top all-time favorite oh, that's cool yes <laughs> see so see, we're so anxious to discuss <laughs> postcards from the anything, edge yes that that we're discussing coen brothers films that don't even happen in 1990 <laughs> i don't think i'm gonna live this one down as long as this podcast runs <laughs> yeah this is gonna be one for the record books i think <laughs> so it's worth mentioning i guess all the way at the very bottom of our list is a movie called fools of fortune 
And the description here says a Protestant Irish family is caught up in a conflict between Irish Republicans and the British Army. And this opens in three theaters. Its widest release is nine theaters, and it does a complete worldwide run of $83,000. I was about to say million. That's not right. $83,000. And it opens with $11,000. So, um, you know, again, this is the, the very bottom of the barrel. So at least you have, you know, <laughs> Miller's Crossing, King of New York, things like that, kind of at least making it a little over the... Uh, the line as to something that we eventually heard about. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Weird. Ooh, yes. Wow. Go figure. But, uh, you know, my takeaway from this list, and, and I don't know, you'll correct me if you think I'm wrong, kind of a meh sort of uh, list for September 1990. Not too much going on. It's really kind of just the uh, summer movies sort of running their course and a couple new things popping up in September, but nothing um, really earth shattering here. Other than really than than Goodfellas, I can't think of a huge name movie. Air America was pretty big. It had a huge advertising campaign, but beyond that, like those are probably the two biggest that came out in September. I would say. Yeah, agree. Oh no, oh Air America came out in August. My apologies, but still, no worries. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I say Goodfellas is probably the biggest name that came out in September. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously postcards does its thing but it's like it, it kind of goes quick you know obviously um goodfellas goes on to earn a little bit more um funny enough it's still not as much as you might think you know especially for how goodfellas has sort of landed in the zeitgeist in, in you know times you know um past that yeah. um because again postcards from the edge does 39 million total goodfellas does 46 million total so not leaps and bounds bigger money you know what i mean for yeah. for a movie that definitely I think probably by and large gets remembered a little more fondly than, than poor postcards does. So I don't know, maybe, maybe we're doing the underdog a little, a little justice here. (laughs) So on that note, why don't we head into this month's review? Alrighty, so this movie, normally I like to take a lot of notes. I wrote down nothing because <laughs> I kind of went into it and this is how I look at it. This movie was nothing that I expected it that it would be and yet everything I thought it was going to be at the same time. So, Yeah, and I know that you were kind of like live blogging to me throughout the day, letting me know that you were watching it and it, like it really like took you all day to watch <laughs> it, it it took me about 11 hours to get through 101 <laughs> minutes so so was this one not like a, a sit down with dory and 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 knock it out sort of one she this, did she not have interest in this one i didn't have interest in this one she didn't have interest in this one. <laughs> so so no basically this was a you know whenever my kids took a nap slash you know I'm not answering emails. I had it open on my laptop and I'm kind of like glancing and watching it and, you know, taking it all in with headphones on in, in, in moments throughout the day. That's kind of how I watched it. And, you. and, and you know what? I, I had to pause it a handful of times and stop and start. There were certain parts of the film that I was engaged and did enjoy it. So let's do your notes. Let's dive into your notes. then. Let's see what you, you took a notes and I took none. 
Yes. So I, I took some notes this month, um, contrary to, to Michael's not. I was able to actually get through this in in one sitting. Um, and did Angie, did Angie watch it with you? She did not, only because actually <laughs> um, I actually this wasn't like one of those like sit down at night and watch it movies. I just tried to like get it in where I could, you know, like in a, in a spot I had during the, the day. Um, so I just kind of like, let me just do this thing and, and go through it. Um, and she wasn't like begging to watch it like she was with ghosts. So like, you know, I don't think there's any, um, anything lost there, but, um, you know, basically, uh, the movie, you know, we open up on like this long single take, um, and it leads you to believe it's her in real life that she's kind of like in some South American country, maybe Cuba. Um, and she's kind of like running into the airport and trying to head off and the people kind of grab her and throw her in a room. And like, you all of a sudden start getting like this hint that like, oh, this isn't actually that. Maybe this is her in an acting role because I, I kind of knew going into the movie. This is, you know, she's an actress, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she kind of like flubs her line. Did you catch what the flub was? Like, nope. totally. <laughs> yeah, couldn't. It, it, I think she kind of like got like one word wrong, uh, but I kind of like missed it. <laughs> like, I, I, like to the point where it was like so subtle. I didn't realize it until all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, Gene Hackman shows up and uh, thank God for Gene Hackman for this movie um, shows up and is like, nope. All right, cut. We got to <laughs> or she kind of realizes and like, oops, you know. Yeah. Like the the word that she flubs, I think, is the word what? Like, that's it. But she says it kind of like she says what wrong or some like. But it was it was this so bizarre, like you have to really be paying attention to whatever she as an actor messes up in this line that I, I was sh- t- I, I was totally taken out of it right then and there. Like, what? What are you talking about? What's going on? <laughs> well, I, I think the thing becomes here on out and and they sort of handle this sometimes better, sometimes worse throughout the movie is that she's a person that's dealing with addiction. She's a drug addict. Um, and we're going to go on to see other issues with that, um, you know, in the upcoming scenes here. The funny part of this one for me is that, you know, they kind of have a scene where um, Gene Hackman is listening to like the sound guys listening to her in her trailer. And apparently she's doing some cocaine. Um, and, you know, he she comes out and he kind of like does like a 180 from like the kind of more kind natured moment he was having a moment before and is like, you know, do what you want on your time. But it, while you're on my time, don't mess this up for me or I'll kill you. And like, you know, like, yeah, I, I love gene hackman like oh, I, I do too but the the turn of his personality in this movie which happens a couple of times is so quick and so abrupt i'm like wow and there's gene a hackman few instances rock. of that throughout this movie you know what i mean like there's a few times that different people in this movie have that like all of a sudden 180 turn on a dime um but it, you know he's just such a great actor i was so happy to see him pop up right away in this and I'll get back to him later for his other portions later on in the movie. But like, um, you know, he even has like this great line and I, I unfortunately didn't write down the exact quote, but like, you know, he kind of like tells her off and like all of a sudden realizes that everybody else is sort of listening. And then he's kind of like, everybody get back to work unless you want to be fired or killed. <laughs> you know? and yeah. I just like, I love that he like his response to both her and the rest of the people is that he's literally going to like kill them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he was no nonsense director for sure. It was yeah, so, so it's pretty wild, but yeah, and it kind of bummed me out because we don't see him again until much later in the film. Like he's yes, just gone. When we get back to that, and we will, I love 
that scene. So we'll boomerang our way back to good old Gene Hackman. So um, next thing up then, obviously, is um, we kind of end up on a scene where she's in bed, right? Um, and she's in bed with Dennis Quaid. And um, a Dennis very Quaid, young Dennis Quaid. <laughs> very young. And actually, that's that's going to pop up in several spots throughout this movie. Um, but he, he's such a great actor. Um, and this character that he's playing, um, it, it's so funny. Like, I had this kind of like meandering sort of thing with him throughout this movie. Um, and he, he kind of like serves a very particular story beat and role and things like that. Um, but <laughs> I love the opening scene because like I was getting this total Ian e. Malcolm Jurassic Park vibe, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum sort of vibe right. from like the opening scene, which then he kind of changes later. Yeah. Or maybe I just like wasn't picking up on it at first, but like I, I, it's so funny. He kind of just like wakes up and goes on like this riff. Turns out she's like completely OD, but this is like the most light OD I feel like I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, it um, was particularly very they, underplayed. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I was curious if that was your take, too, because I feel like for, like, multiple pills and, like, I think they said alcohol and, like, Lots of cocaine. alcohol. There was, there, was, there was cocaine. There was bottles of alcohol <laughs> all tipped over. Yeah, like, to, like, the point I, where she, like, has to get her stomach pumped. Like, she's just kind of, like, out. And, like, I was like, well, she can't be dead <laughs> because the movie's about her. And like, this here's is the like thing. the end of the movie and they're flashing back or something. <laughs> so so he, so here's the funny thing about that, right? So she is literally unconscious in Dennis Quaid's bed to the point where he's shaking her and rattling her and she's probably dead or looks dead. He brings her to the hospital in his <laughs> Jeep, seat belted, and he's kind of trying to like hold her head up, yes. you know, weekend at Bernie way, style. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, a little bit of like, overacting and again who's to question Meryl Streep you know <laughs> multiple Oscar nominee and winner but like you know for like a pretty like normal road and like a, a jeep whatever her head was like jostling around as if they were going down like a, like a bobblehead track or something yeah. <laughs> and he's like trying to like grab her head and hold it still but that's some of like the funny quirky humor of this movie and like again I'm actually somebody that has read and it's probably bears repeating that this is a um, story um, originally written as a book by Carrie Fisher. She adapts it as a screenplay for this film. Um, and this is definitely Carrie Fisher humor. I've read some of her other aut semi or autobiographical books. I did not read Postcards from the Edge, but I I've read like um, Wishful Drinking and a few of her other things. Um, and uh, this is definitely Carrie Fisher humor. So like uh, between her and Mike Nichols, I see where some of these little like funny just like dumb in jokes like this pop up <laughs> so you know like these were fine <laughs> so it's funny you mentioned that right so you mentioned that it's it's based on a, a, a book by carrie fisher and about her life right kind of so, it's like it's loosely. like a very loosely autobiographical book and i had to do a little extra research on that because i thought it was maybe a little bit more about her and really and truly she would tell you that despite its its ease in sort of comparing it to her and her mother, Debbie Reynolds, and sort of her life, that she, she has some quote where she's like, oh, you know, people would you know sort of think that like I couldn't be imagined enough to like create some unique characters. So I think she's trying to borrow bits and pieces of her life, but she's also writing 
this as somebody who's not quite herself and not quite her mother. And, and I, I don't know, it sort of is weird because <laughs> it, it really kind of like aims close to her life, but it also has a lot of deviations. And, and I, I think she would tell you that this is not about her life. And that's where we can start to see differences, even though this movie feels like it's often about her and sounds like her and other people in her life. So here's the thing. So this movie, I, I, one of the a couple of things that I noticed was it, it felt like to me that Meryl Streep was playing a character meant to be younger than she was at the time of this film. And even though she says in one point she's middle aged, but I feel like she was playing a character that almost felt like in her late 20s, early 30s kind of thing. And the reason why I feel that is because like, like I said, Dennis Quaid is very young in this movie. And there's a point in the movie where in the very beginning where she's in the hospital and she's kind of incoherent and Richard Dreyfus appears as her doctor and says she's got to pump her stomach. And then we get this cut to this, I guess, dream sequence of her in this very long hallway with pictures of all dead celebrities like Elvis, uh, John Belushi, uh, Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, yeah. and so on and so forth. And then she goes to the end of this hallway, and there's like this glass case full of multicolored pills. And she just takes a keeping of one of them and puts them in her pocket. And then all of a sudden, she kind of wakes up from this thing. I honestly thought, based on the name of this movie being Postcards from the Edge, I thought <laughs> it was going to be about her near death. And trying to find her way back to her body before she dies. So I can actually shine a little bit of light on that. And that's the interesting thing about the fact that they proceeded with the title of this movie. In the book, Postcards from the Edge, the first like two. Like the way I saw it sort of described is that if you broke the book into like fifths, the first like two fifths is told via written postcards. So. She's like literally like in rehab, having dealt with this overdose and like whatever. And apparently the book is much, much, much more about that, about dealing with the addiction and uh, rehab and things like that. And it like it does, you know, kind of feature in on her and her mother at points. But that's not the main story. When she writes the screenplay, she focuses in on the relationship with the mother, which is a very Carrie Fisher thing to do. Um, but that's where the postcards from the edge comes from. And that's where you're getting that sense from, because actually that, as you're describing it is kind of what the book tends to be more about. And actually my understanding is that even portions of the book, um, are told from the perspective of even like her, um, like her roommate at like the, um, rehab. So uh, like, it definitely is dealing a lot more with that addiction end of it. So I think that's kind of where that comes from, um, to speak to the age thing. Um, I did a little math on this one because I was kind of curious myself. So Carrie Fisher at the time of this movie's release would have been around 34. So, you know, she was living hard (laughs) you know, in her younger years. Meryl Streep at this point is about 41. And Shirley MacLaine is about 56. So that puts her about 15 years older than um, Meryl. Right. Um, So, yes, to your point, um, it's there's this kind of funny juxtaposition and I can't tell how much of this is Carrie Fisher 
as a slightly younger person writing some of this versus then them hiring Meryl to be the main character. And this isn't to say that I thought Meryl was inappropriate in this role um, or to question her age too far out of it. Because as you say, like there definitely is moments where she's like, I'm middle-aged or whatever, but there's just as many moments where she's kind of not acting middle-aged, you know what I mean? Or her mother doesn't refer to her in that way. Right. And I think that's kind of sort of the point, you know, that essentially this is a character that has been um, babied by a mother that's probably not 100% fit to have raised her, kind of was very enveloped in her own life, her own substance abuse issues, um, and therefore still kind of thinks of her as like, I mean, she kind of says it in a few points. She kind of like thinks of her as like her child that like, if only she could, you know, take her singing career off. Like she's trying to compare her at one point to like Madonna, which I thought was like a funny poll. And it's definitely a very 1990 poll. Um, but it's like, you know, somebody that, that, you know, is referring to herself even as more in her middle years is like, you know, she's kind of like in the middle of her career at that point. It's I, yeah, I wouldn't see her as being somebody that like, is like, you know, at the very start of her career or at the very end of her career, despite, you know, like if she kind of keeps up with the substance issues, maybe that would be the case. I think she's kind of on the money for where she needs to be to be this character. But it is this funny juxtaposition between times where she's like, oh, I'm middle aged, but also times where she's like, I don't want to go out today. I want to like go do this, you know, like, you know, yeah. so it's it's very funny. She plays it at times like a whiny 20 year old and she plays it at times like, you know, somebody that completely makes sense. So I, I think that's why you get that little funny vibe. Because, uh, you know, it kind of like that character almost like floats in this like ageless miasma um, throughout the movie, depending on, you know, how sober she is or what she's doing. And I think the more um, off the wagon, she plays it younger. And then when she's more on the wagon, she kind of plays it more to that character's true age. So I, I don't know, maybe that that kind of plays in there as well. I got to look up miasma. I don't know what the heck that <laughs> word is. Um you know what it is also there's moments in the film where uh Shirley MacLaine's character's mother appears and she's like in her 70s I guess and I'm like okay Meryl Streep looks 40 Shirley MacLaine looks close to 60 and then grandma looks like 75 it just the the I don't know I don't know if they should have well I mean know, again I think that's that's part of the thing too. And ultimately, and we'll get back to this when we get towards the end of the movie, but like when they play up Shirley McLean's character after her car accident, at the end of the movie in the hospital. And like, all of a sudden she doesn't have the wig on or the makeup on. And, you know, you're now seeing this like vulnerable, not, you know, public facing version of her, uh, you know, first of all, I love Shirley McLean to death. I do I too. She did such an awesome job and really. So of she course did Meryl and, and I'll get back to Meryl later. But Shirley MacLaine, just so adorable. And she, and, she did a really and, great job with this um, role in this movie. And, and kind I of. I have to say also, yeah, like Shirley MacLaine steals the show. Like she's definitely the m most interesting character in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that's built into that character. You know what I mean? I think that like. This is the mother that can't get out of her daughter's way, you know, like she's always trying to steal the thunder. And then again, like obviously when we're getting ahead of us ourselves that they kind of reconcile on the end of the movie and she kind of finally admits, you know, being jealous and, and blah, 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 and, and not being able to let go. And and there's not some, there's some other not so subtle hints about that sort of thing throughout the whole, 
thing, but um, it, it's funny because as you sort of say, I think Meryl almost plays down to a younger age at points. And I think Shereen McLean is playing up to an older age past her years at points. Um, but I think that kind of just goes part and parcel with the characters they're trying to fit. So I think in a way they did like a really um, good job with that. <laughs> and uh, just jumping back to the, the notes end of things, just because you had mentioned <laughs> um, her being in the hospital and everything. I love that he like slapped her in the face. <laughs> yeah. And I was wondering if that's standard practice among um, MDs when dealing with overdoses, um, even in the eighties or nineties, <laughs> I would, I would say probably in the eighties or nineties. Yes. I wouldn't say so now, but, but yeah, maybe then I would say, yeah, give her a good shot in the face. If she <laughs> comes to. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I thought that that was quite funny just between, as you said, um, Dennis Quaid just sort of like, innocuously dumping her off and, and trying to beat feet out the door um, as if not to get tied in with her. And then just like that, I was like, man, this poor woman is getting shown no love. Yeah. Um, and then to the, to the Shirley McLean sort of thing, then uh, of course she makes her grand entrance then to come see her in the hospital. And I love that her or in the rehab, I guess is when she, she meets up with her. I love that. Like she's like immediately oblivious. She kind of like meets her, roommate who just sort of materializes out of nowhere <laughs> yeah. um, at this point in the movie they kind of have this funny thing between her uh, waking up in the rehab and then all of a sudden just like her mom coming and she's already clearly been in the rehab for like a minute because she knows her roommate whatever um probably a, a cutting room um scene there somewhere in between um but the woman's name is aretha and like she she like kind of has this joke where she's like oh yeah i think my parents were expecting somebody black <laughs> and like her mother misses like the very obvious like Aretha Franklin joke. So yeah. I was like, wow, that was kind of like a weird <laughs> thing. Like yeah, everybody knows Aretha joke. Franklin, you know. Yeah. So uh, again, uh, that's definitely I feel like some of that like Carrie Fisher humor um, leaking through. And I, I I can't tell how closely that relates to something her mother might have <laughs> said or whatever. Because yeah. again, like. From what I read, she was trying to write this stuff original, but like I feel like there's some things that maybe feel like they hit a little too close to home. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so so this is the funny thing about this movie. It has weird jumps in time, and 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 it kind of gets confusing. Like you just said, you know, we jump from her being in the hospital, having this dream sequence, to boom, she's in the rehab facility, and apparently she's been there for some time, and it's like, how do we get there? It happens yeah, so fast. They, they kind of do mention that. Like the, she kind of says like, why can't I remember anything? And the woman says, Oh, that's like the effects of blah, 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 or something. So uh, uh, that's a transition I think is fine that, you know, even like kind of like in how they did with ghost, you know, like that, like weird dream sequence that we mentioned in that, that like it kind yeah. of acted as like a, um, like a little time pass or something like that. So I don't mind that one, but there is some other little funny jumps. And, and one of them obviously is then, her mother getting there but it just was funny because like we're missing the scene where she's obviously introduced to her um roommate or whatever which again is not like the most important thing in the world but when they introduce the roommate you feel like she's going to be a bigger part of the movie and then she kind of ends up like just like fizzling away <laughs> you know so yeah. it, it, it was almost like they bring that character in just to have somebody for her to talk with a few times and to like make a couple little jokes like that. So I don't know. There's definitely, we, we mentioned it. There's a few throwaway characters in this movie that kind of just show up for like a there's moment. A lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of bit roles where this yeah. film 
honestly, for, you know, for the most part, is sort of a character study of the two leads. Of course. And that's really what it is. Of and course. Yeah, no, everybody else is there in support of them. So that's, it's fair. It's totally fair. Um, but it, it just was funny because I was like, the way that she kind of mentioned her and things like that, I was like, oh, is she going to play some other role in her rehab and her things like that? And then like, you know, poof, the rehab <laughs> portion of it kind of doesn't, you know, end up being like a big focus. <laughs> So um, uh, speaking of the rehab and, and, and obviously the mother being there, I keep bringing this back up. I brought this up in Die Hard. I, I'm bringing it up again um, just because of that 30 year prism. It, it so cracks me up that she was smoking. The mother pulls out a cigarette and starts smoking right <laughs> in the, the, the rehab center. It was so and I was like, you know, I don't know. Like you, you've seen plenty of movies where um, folks are um, in a rehab setting and are lighting up. And I guess like in, at points in time, that was like a fair sort of thing, but I feel like s- the smoking addiction in lieu of the other addictions is probably not positive. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't think in, in 2020, at least <laughs> that that's the thing that's still happening. So it just, it, it so cracks me up in some of these nineties movies, how, um, what smokestacks people are. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it's weird. And, and there's a moment later on in the film where she's on Meryl Streep's playing in another movie and they make a joke about her. She, they should get her to start smoking for whatever reason. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Not helping on that uh, addiction front, I guess. Hey, hey Pete, you there? What's going on? Hey, hello? What's your favorite scary movie? Who is this? It's me, Pete. <laughs> oh, hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> it's almost Halloween time, so I thought we'd talk a minute about what our favorite scary movies are. What's your favorite of all time, Mike? Ooh, my favorite scary movie of all time? Ooh, I, I, I'm not good with scary movies, <laughs> but, you know, it, it depends. Like, are we talking, like, deep horror? Or are we talking, like, I don't know. Because if I had to pick a real scary movie, it'd probably be... The, Exorcist or The Shining, Ooh. but but also The Sixth Sense is a pretty darn scary movie at times. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, there's so many good things out there. I think one of the things that pops into my head probably right off the bat is Alien. Um, yeah, they, those movies like they just have such great kind of creepy factor to them, and like that feeling hunted and and like you know those face huggers are ugh, nightmare fuel <laughs> well dude i'm gonna have nightmares come on <laughs> sorry well while you're having your nightmares uh i thought i'd mention that we're actually doing a promo right now with halloweencostumes.com as part of the retro network so between now and october 31st you our listeners can actually save 20 percent off of one item at halloweencostumes.com If you go to our show notes, you'll actually find a link there that you can follow, but you can also go to their website and type in the coupon code TRN202020. And again, that's going to get you 20% off of any one item. So whether that's a uh, alien costume or whatever, (laughs) go check it out and support the Retro Network and check out that and get some awesome stuff on HalloweenCostumes.com. You know what I actually liked on that website? The Big Lebowski costume. It's a robe... A beard, a tank top, and a wig. That's my kind of Halloween costume. Just well, you know that what? Out there for you. The dude abides. The dude abides. Halloweencostumes.com. 
TRN 2020. So then the uh, the creepy flowers from the stomach pump doctor. Yeah. <laughs> WTF, <that> was... mates. <laughs> Again, I think that has to do with a definite Carrie Fisher reference that she that may have happened really to her. Yeah, that makes me so curious because obviously it, it that also then circles back later in the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a weird thing. And I, I'm sure that like various celebrities have things like this happen to them, um, sort of wildly inappropriate um, come ons from people that, you know, they run into or, or things like that. So, yeah, that one was it was kind of off putting. I was like, ooh, that's that's kind of <laughs> yeah, cringy. Um, uh, so next thing I have um, kind of written down here then is that they are kind of sort of next in um, her business manager's office. Um, and I don't remember that they explicitly said his name in the movie. Maybe it was on a, um, you know, like a, a tablet on his desk or something like that. But um, her business manager's name is Marty Weiner, And that went a long way for me in explaining why he had so much Oscar Mayer wiener and hot dog stuff <laughs> sitting on his desk. Did you notice that? I missed all that. I didn't see any of that. That was like the first thing I noticed about that scene. Cause they were like talking to him and like what she needs to do to keep her image up and all this sort of thing. And I'm like, Oh, all right. You know, I've watched entourage, whatever, you know, this is, this is, you know, nothing new or interesting. Um, but he just had like an Oscar Mayer wiener mobile, like front and center on his desk. And I'm like, what is that about? And like this pile of like hot dogs. So, Again, like point in case, like when I was like looking up, you know, the various people that are in the film, of course, then all of a sudden, like I, my question first was like, what's with the Oscar Mayer Wiener stuff? And it was immediately answered when I looked it up by the fact that this character's name was Marty Wiener. And I think they later on in the movie finally say his name. Yeah, uh, But this. I was just like, what a random joke again to like, just like, <laughs> like why, you know, like Hollywood exec has an office across the street from at that point, man's Chinese theater. I forget what they call it now. Um, uh, Grumman's theater. I don't know. I, I forget. Grumman's, I think it's Grumman's now. Yeah. Yeah. Something different. But like, you know, he's just got this like Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile. And I was like, what the heck? And as a fun aside to that, <laughs> when I used to work in New York years ago on 45th Street, there was this big parking lot out the window of where my office was. And very often the Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile used to park there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good pull there, my friend. Little little fun fact. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel proud that I could say that I, I saw that dopey looking thing in real life. <laughs> Many a day. Many a day. Interesting. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Anyway, I, I loved that character of Marty Wiener because it felt like such a caricature of a, of a Hollywood agent. And I ended up looking up the actor and I felt like I recognized him from something or other. But he was doing like his best like sinatra or dean martin sort of thing did you catch that like he's yes. kind of oh, totally. he's kind of like well, here's what you gotta do baby you gotta and i'm just like oh my god felt yeah. so over the top <laughs> it, it, it's a very dean martin-y kind of persona uh, persona yes and because you've gotten me thinking about it since we did our very first podcast i was kind of on the hunt for um some product placement and i noticed that uh she, her character was drinking a fanta Fanta in that uh, in that scene too. So there's a, a little funny '90s Hollywood 
pop up as well. <laughs> she also asks for Coca-Cola several times. And she's drinking Coca-Cola several times in the movie, too. Yes. Yeah, that definitely pops up. And I, I think that they kind of like use that at a point to also make the joke between like, can I have a Coke? Oh, Coca-Cola, not the other thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so, all right. I get why they're going that route. <laughs> so um, next one I have down here then is um, Rob Reiner which I was very happy to, Dude, to see pop when Rob up. Rob <laughs> Reiner shows up. He is so funny in this scene because it's, it's one of these scenes where he's one of the producers on this film that she's working on that she doesn't want to be in this film to begin with, <laughs> but because of her history with drug problems, this is the only role she could get. And he kind of comes into her trailer and he's kind of awkward and a little bit <laughs> douchey. And he's like, yeah, we need to do a drug test. And she's like, <laughs> she's like blood or urine. And he goes, urine will be fine, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the way he delivers the line is so funny. Well, no, that whole scene is so perfect. Like, A, they cram into like the doorway. because He brings yeah. like somebody else with him. I don't remember if he's a lawyer or something. Yeah. And then like, he's like, oh, if we're going to squeeze any more people in here, we're going to need to get some lube. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just like one thing after another like that with him. And then like, she's like, do you want me to like pee into a cup? Do you have a cup? And he's like, oh, he's like, uh, you know, I'll send a nurse later to pick it up. Whatever's, whatever's fine. And then he just like turns to the guy. And he's like, go, go, go. And I was like, this was like, I, it almost felt like they just told Rob Weiner to like show up and do whatever yeah. he wanted, you know, and maybe I'm way off on that, you know, and, and all due respect to Carrie Fisher. Maybe she wrote that scene in there just as it is. But like, it, it was so off the cuff and random. Like it, it, it almost like was like the point of feeling like zany. Um. <laughs> but th this is, this is funny because you bring up an interesting point. This movie clearly takes place predominantly on a movie set because she's playing an actor filming a movie and i wonder for some of these bit parts like you know rob reiner shows up oliver platt shows up at one point yes. for like a moment and i'm like i want to super young walk. oliver platt <laughs> super young and he, i actually like, had to look that up it, funny enough it, it's actually something like his like third or fourth movie maybe wow but i was shocked to find that that was the case because like he's like a baby in this movie yeah he looks so young and it's funny because i wonder if they're like filming this movie like oh we need somebody to play this character hey rob reiner's in studio b let's go grab him <laughs> for five minutes and film this scene <laughs> yeah again like i just don't know how many of those connections are like he's friends with somebody or somebody else is friends with somebody or again like i said like they had these various people come in and help with the table readings and things that they then pulled into these little parts so he might have been part of that you know like who knows like i don't but, i don't necessarily know all the connections that she might have had at that point but he was so great popping in on that the other funny thing about both his character and oliver platt's character is they're acting it, it, it even though it takes place in 1990 and they say semi-inappropriate things to her that are sort of awkward it's one of those things where you can see people today kind of saying the same sort of things to somebody in an equally awkward sort of like how do i gauge this to not sound inappropriate <laughs> or offensive but i need this and it's yeah kind of funny. i mean he was treading treading the line there you know he's like oh you know it's not for me i don't really care but you know all oh, those darn insurance agents you know and yes. it's like you know yeah so i i, I could see that being an as you said before i could see this being another instance where this probably happened to her in real life and it was too good not to write into it um yeah. i could definitely see that being 
the case here. To uh, again on that kind of you mentioned like this this movie that she could get. First of all, I think I thought at first it was a movie too. I felt like as the movie went on, I was getting the impression it might have been more like a like a funny cop show or something. You know what I mean? Like, may, I, I don't know. What, what did you, what was your take? Because like, <laughs> you know, like your first like real intro to it is she kind of finally comes out in like this like Halloween store police outfit where like yeah. the badge even says something like policeman police. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like if you look close, it says policeman police. And then they like tie her to a cactus with like her co-star on this old West set with like a cartel looking guy holding a gun to them. And then like the, the like AD or somebody's like, all right, like just everybody be on your, you know, best behavior here because we have some live snakes. And I'm like, what is this movie? Or like, I don't know, like as it goes on, like I can't tell if it's a movie or a TV show. Like it felt like they were poking fun at like the Miami vices of the world or something like that with that, with that, that she was working on. I, I think it's, it's meant to be a B movie that she is the only role she could get kind of thing, but yeah. it does sort of like poke fun at chips and those kind of co- buddy cop kind of a thing. But I'm almost positive it's a movie. And there's a moment in the film where she's hanging on the side of a building in yes. the police uniform. And then she sort of like flubs her line or kind of like doesn't kind of care. And she lifts her hands off the thing and shrugs her shoulders. <laughs> and yeah. it 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 was one of the few like full out loud laugh moments I had in the movie. <laughs> and I only laughed at it because I remembered a couple of years ago when she got a lifetime achievement award, they showed that exact clip yeah. in like her montage of things. I'm like, that's where that thing comes yeah. from. And it made me laugh. <laughs> no, it's true. And actually there's a lot of like fun behind the scenes sort of shots in this movie like that, you know, and it's, it, it's right from even the beginning of the movie. Like I said, that like long single shot where the helicopter lands and blah, blah, blah. And it goes everything. I really liked that, that they sort of like, you know, like, she's carrying on her career in one way or another, despite the other stuff that's going on in in her life. But they have these fun things like that. And like in particular, something like that, like sort of like using like that great, like forced perspective with the rear projection of the cars below it, you know, like (laughs) a la how they used to do like Batman climbing up the wall and Batman 66 sort of thing, like where they're cheating an angle. I love that they included that because it's like, they're letting you in on a little bit of like the movie magic and kind of also making like fun of it a bit at the same time. Um, I thought that was very fun for them to do. And they do that like with a couple different things, you know, like, you know, they have like the, the scene where she's like on the boat and like, they're having this very serious conversation, you know, <laughs> like where the guy's like changing out like the windshield and like, you know, just really silly things like that. Um, yeah. And yeah, I actually really appreciated even them because I think it's still a product of its time. And, and some of the things that you and I have been talking about, in terms of like, how did they do that shot with using the rear projection? You know what I mean? Like there's been a few things when we've been talking about things like total recall where it's like, Oh, well that's how they had that image element in the background, you know? So it's fun that they're kind of like, you know, including something that was like a real world um, thing they would have been doing at that moment in time, you know, rather than just like, you know, the age of green screen and things that are in a few years coming down the road and started to take over that. It wouldn't have been as fun to see that scene against a green screen where we would have known how, you know, how the, you know, sort of thing is made. But um, yeah, I don't know. That just struck out as a, as a funny thing for me. Agree. 
So next thing then was um, she, uh, her mother kind of throws her a surprise, like she's home party, which <laughs> one might argue is inappropriate for <laughs> somebody coming out of rehab. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong in that, but let's have a party and everybody's going to drink except the guest of yes. honor. Yeah. <laughs> the one part that I bring that up to bring up is I love her grandparents. <laughs> yes. Her grandparents. I was like, cracking up because they had so many funny little one-liners oh, man. and like little grandma sayings but like you know there's a lot of grandma sayings out there in the world that like are universal like you've heard your grandma say them i felt like her grandma had like all these one-liners where i'm like i have never heard that before that is completely original and again i'm so curious if it's something that she wrote originally or something that she pulled from somebody in her life Isla, you know her grandparent or something like that i thought that was really funny and then like her senile grandfather who kind of like has a catch line of like get off my back woman yak, yeah yak. <laughs> it's just like it was so over the top and it, like now, you know like I everybody else for you yeah do you know who the grandfather is he looked awfully familiar but i did not bother to go look him up he's the dad from different strokes really <laughs> yeah that's pretty funny yeah both him and the grandmother um look familiar to me and funny enough i did look her up and she's like you know, one of these people that's played a million different roles and a nun, oddly, in a, in a bunch of different roles and things like that. <laughs> sort of like this, like, straight shooter sort of, you know, tight sort of character. So it's funny seeing her playing um, this kind of goofy sort of role here. But the two of them, like, talking about scene stealing, like, they just came in and, like, really, they, really had me cracking up. They do steal a lot of good scenes. And... uh the woman, the man who plays Shirley MacLaine's second husband or or Meryl Streep's stepfather, he doesn't say anything till the very <laughs> end. And when he finally talks, it's just so funny. Like it like it made me laugh because I feel like, again, this was a character that I feel like definitely came from somebody in Carrie Fisher's life and was sort of this was the way that person was. And then they threw a joke in the end like, oh, he speaks like, yes. <laughs> No, that was totally funny. Yes, I actually really like the scene where Dennis Quaid's character is like, "Oh, what you watching?" and he just like points at the TV and he's like, <laughs> "He's like, oh, cool." <laughs> you know, like, just, I, and there was some definitely like little moments like that that were like really just great little character moments that I I did appreciate. Um, fun fact, um, because you you were mentioning him and and kind of their father figures that are happening here, I saw um, somewhere in my research on this movie that actually they had filmed a scene with Jerry Orbach as her actual father um, in New York and that they ended up cutting that out. I was a wow. little sad that that was the case. I think it's, they said it was in like the DVD commentary that Carrie Fisher says that I'm really sad about that. Cause I'm a big, big Jerry Orbach person. And yeah, uh, me too. I think that would have been really fun to see him in that role sort of playing against that character, particularly because it sounds like he's a complete like train wreck himself, you know? Um, so I would have really liked to see him like the, uh, the lush or, um, drugged out or whatever terrible father figure Jerry Orbach could have played. I'm curious if that's on like a um, deleted scene somewhere on a DVD. <laughs> if you can find the DVD, that's the real good question. <laughs> that's the question. And I'm not all that interested in, in finding the DVD, but if you're somebody listening who happens to have postcards from the edge on DVD and you happen to know if that's a deleted scene, please let us know. <laughs> Because I would really like to see that scene. I wonder if I could look that up on the internet. I, I'm like asking if somebody has the DVD. I'm like, I could look on the internet. 
Um, Clickety clackety. Type yeah. it in the internet. <laughs> www.youtube.com yes the youtubes <laughs> the daily motion um so um i thought that they have a scene that does come out of this which i thought was a kind of cool character moment and i thought that it was you know interesting that they kind of started playing singing and music so much into this movie as they ended up doing that they had several like full length sort of musical numbers like beginning full to end length songs. like yeah. the entire song um it was a, a little but, much personally I, I, right. yeah I, I thought you know it, it it started to feel that way but then i kind of saw where they were going with it so i was like all right it's fair um but i thought it was a fun juxtaposition between the two characters that essentially um meryl streep's character's song was you don't know me and then her mother's was i'm still here I thought that was actually kind of clever song choice to kind of like flesh out exactly who those two characters are, because I feel like really you start building up at this scene and ongoing that the rest of this movie kind of becomes a little bit about the two of them and like this and their relationship. Yeah. Kind of who they are and kind of their relationship. So like those two songs are kind of like exact, like on the nose buttons to who those characters are like that, like, her character's like, you don't know me. You're, you're kind of only focused on yourself, blah, blah, blah. And then like her mother's still kind of got that, like, I'm still here. I'm still, you know, trying to hang on to my career. I thought those were very, very clever song choices, even if it did mean that you're sitting through probably like seven to eight minutes of songs back to back. You know what I mean? And that said, like, I both think that they did really good jobs. I think Shirley MacLaine did a better job here. Oh, yeah. Um, Like she was but, just but- like really fun. It's it's one of those things where Meryl Streep's character, when she sings, feels kind of more like a Bonnie Raitt kind of a singer. You know what I mean? Totally. And like, again, like when she sings in the end, it, it doesn't like help that it's like a country version of a song that yeah. she's singing to. You know. So um, here's my problem with the with the film. This is my biggest problem, and it, I realized it at this moment more or less. We're probably about twenty five thirty minutes into the movie at this point, maybe a little less. We, I just don't care about the characters enough at this point <laughs> to to feel like I'm fully engaged and and with our protagonist and our antagonist, which they kind of flip back and forth at times for who's the good guy, who's the bad guy in a way. Um, I feel like they needed to establish something earlier because after Meryl Streep gets out of rehab, she really, other than one moment in the film, doesn't struggle with the addiction as much as I thought she should have. And they kind of, at points, I feel like forget that she's dealing with substance abuse and and rehab and more about the relationship with her mother and salvaging her career if she wants to and so on and so forth. No, I I definitely agree with that point. Um, And I think I was actually going to finish up a little bit with that point. Um, But uh, I I completely agree with you in that it became tricky at times to completely sort of side with her or have interest or, or, or or care exactly. Yeah. About a hundred percent of what's going on um, with her. And it's, it's sort of is because the, the plot sort of meanders from one thing to another on what's the important thing. Is it about the drugs and the addiction? Is it about her relationship with her mother? Or as it comes up pretty soon here, 
um, which is actually one of the next things I was going to mention. Does it have to do with Jack and and sort of like the relationship that she starts to have um, with him? And I thought that there's probably no better segue into this than than actually you bringing that up, that he sort of shows back up. And I couldn't tell if this was a character that was going to show back up. I was like, maybe he was one and done at the beginning of the movie after he dropped her off. But he sort of then just shows up on the set of, you know, her film, whatever. Um, and kind of is like, oh, like, I, you know, I want to tell you that this was you and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, <laughs> I'd like to kind of see you again and all this sort of thing. And um, they kind of have like a, a couple like scenes like bang, bang, bang. Um, and I, I actually have to say, and again, this goes back to Dennis Quaid. And again, I love Dennis Quaid to death that all of a sudden now I'm off the Ian e. Malcolm thing. And realizing that he is doing his best Harrison Ford impression. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, curiouser and curiouser. Because again, like I'm I'm thinking that, you know, this is well past her point in time where she's been on Star Wars. Um, people these days know that she had an affair. And I'm talking Carrie Fisher now with, with yeah. Harrison Ford. They were together for a time. So, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, this kind of like smooth talking, like good looking guy. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, his hair even kind of looks like Harrison Ford. He right? sounds they like did. Harrison Ford. Is this supposed to be Harrison Ford? <laughs> you know, and again, like, who knows? Could be totally original, but it felt all of a sudden a lot like Harrison Ford. Right. Um, it it goes from being almost like a Matthew McConaughey kind of a character. Yes. Yeah. To straight up successful, wealthy, lives on a big ranch. Yes, yeah, he's like, he's like a producer. Now, here's the thing with the ranch, because like I had a question about that, because he says that they're going to a ranch and he tells the mother they're going to a ranch, but then like they end up like by the ocean. So is it I an think that's Oceanside a California ranch? Is that what I, that is? <laughs> I well, they said a ranch in Malibu. And I think in California a lot of times if they have a large piece of property in places like Malibu, they call it a ranch. They call it a ranch. <laughs> ranch yeah, not house even maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not necessarily like horses. Yeah. And my cattle. mind went straight to cattle because again, there's a ton of cattle farming out on the West coast too. Yeah. Like it's like the methane capital of the world. But you know, I was like, I was just thinking to myself, like this is not what I was expecting when all of a sudden they're like, like this beautiful oceanside Vista or whatever, but I digress. But is it me or was he like completely over the top in love with her for a guy that like had one date with her and like unceremoniously dumped her at the hospital on death's door? Yeah. So this is the problem I have with this whole sequence. He brings her back to this beautiful villa house. Right. And he kind of like woos her and tells her all this like romantic, sweet talking things. I mean, clearly to- he becomes a womanizer. We see that happen but like we see it happen on screen literally yeah he even tells her like he loves her and all this stuff and i'm like is she that naive that she yeah bought it like he 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 was selling it so hard that i'm like is she insecure is this is what i'm getting at yeah it was a funny character trait with her because we see it again happen later on in the movie when she meets back up with richard dreyfus Right. And this is why he's I like, did like, you get my flowers? She, and she's kind of like writing her number down for him. I'm like, God, will she go out with anybody? With like anybody? if they kind of just right. like give her like a couple nice words. Like, I don't know. It did seem like a weird character, that, like kind of flaw. I don't know. It's, that, it, it, that's why I'm like, 
She's 40 years old in real life in this movie, but is she playing somebody in their late 20s that's kind of like, you know, a little bit naive still? Yeah, but that's then she also could... plays the character incredibly independent. You know, like when she's like with him and different people, like he's like, oh, you're joking or whatever now. And she's like, no, it's just because it's like uncomfortable and I'm blah, blah, blah. So she has like that, like, you know, strong woman, like doesn't need the guy sort of thing. But then like, yeah, like, I don't know. He just kind of got real mushy on her after like, five seconds and she was like on board so like it, it just i don't know like this is kind of why i wanted to mention this because as you sort of said like there's these little like plot subbeats that come up like this where you're like oh is this what the movie is about now and then it kind of goes a different direction again and you're like oh is this what the movie is about you know so like i think that's why i wanted to bring all of this up is to kind of again agree with you on this like i couldn't really follow her character and her arc because it kind of kept floundering from what was the important thing happening at the moment. And again, like turns out he's a total womanizer. She, you know, runs into this like starlet on set who's played by Annette Benning. Right. Um, which again, again, another little bit part. By one the way, scene. loved her again. And by the way, Oh my God, did, she was, it was or, fantastic in this movie. Did it, did she remind you at that point of Maggie Gyllenhaal? Yes. Right. I was like, like I know I'm looking at Annette Benning, but I feel like I'm looking at Maggie Gyllenhaal. <laughs> But this is the funny thing throughout this film. You know, Gene Hackman shows up. Richard Dreyfuss shows up. Annette Benning, Dennis Quaid. Annette Benning, I know for a fact, happens to be one of the people that came in via that uh, reading, the reading they were doing in New York. <laughs> but every single big name actor or person that cameos in this movie, every single time they show up, upstage Meryl Streep in this movie and <laughs> and, and like make they they just come on so great and you're like I want to see more of that person where did they go like why are they gone and so I started to think about this thing knowing that it's based on a book I have a funny feeling that the book takes place over a long span of years oh it does right or like at least if not years definitely a longer time because like I said right the whole postcard section is from when she's in rehab so when I'm telling you like at least two fifths of that book, she's in a rehab, you right. know, like that happened in this movie in like five, 10 minutes, five you know? minutes tops. Yeah. I, I honestly believe that they took elements of the book that might've happened at all different points in Carrie Fisher's life and sandwiched them into what feels like a six month span. Of totally. Time. No, I think you're, I think you're completely on point with that. Yeah. I absolutely think that's, um, a very, very strong possibility of, of how these things kind of um, ended up as they did. That's why I think her age feels different in different points in the film, because I think, you know, the scenes with Dennis Quaid, if it's, you know, inherently Harrison Ford, that she might have done that when she was younger. And then scenes yeah. when she's, you know, battling with her mother later on, and she may be older and so on and so forth. And it just feels like the timing is very all over the place, because I think. They just took elements of the film or elements of the book that happened over maybe a decade, let's say, or maybe a half a decade and sandwiched them into what felt like six months. Yeah. So needless to say, she ends up um, breaking up with Jack because she confronts him. And man, does he go from like nice Jack to evil Jack in zero villain. seconds flat. Villain. Yeah, just flies off the handle at her trying to like turn everything around. And again, like awesome, awesome performance by Dennis Quaid in that portion. Um, and then I loved her firing the blank gun at, at him. <laughs> it it was so 
foreshadowed and telegraphed in the fact that she shows up to the house in the cop Police, uniform, yeah, uniform. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm like, she pulls out the, you know, the baton and I'm like, oh, she's not going to club it, but the gun is still in the holster. She's going to shoot the blanks out of it. So I thought she was going to do what he was in the shower. That's what I thought yeah. she was going to do it. But so it, totally no. So needless to say, she kind of like gets like a second rock bottom in the movie at this point, because obviously she's on this kind of crummy movie. She's now broken up, got together and broken up with him within like a day's time. <laughs> um, and then she, they kind of have this scene where it turns out that like that um, wiener, Mr. Wiener there has, has like run off and embezzled her money. Yeah. Like with that. her funds, he's like disappeared or something like that. Um, and she, it kind of like ends up then with like this sort of knockdown drag out fight with her mother, which I think is like several of these things to kind of get her to this, like, you know, more of a fight with her mom and sort of pushes her into kind of like, you know, being more like open with how, you know, she's feeling about it. And my thought at this point in the movie, because like the mother is like a louse, you know I mean? Like, again, like she's got her addiction problems, but the mother's like drinking, drinking, drinking. And obviously this becomes like the next and final sort of leg of the movie. I thought it was an interesting choice that despite how much she's drinking, you don't really ever see the effect of it. She's not you like know, that prototypical mother. That's like, you were always a terrible daughter. You're like really stumbling over herself. Yeah. Like, you know, like she you drinks and drinks and drinks, drunk. but like she seems fine. So I, I, I'm curious about that choice. Like, is it better that they didn't go with that stereotypical version or does it seem like off-putting then that like ultimately she wraps her car around a tree, despite the fact that you're being told and being shown she drinks a lot. She seems to handle it really well. We don't see her like tipping down the stairs or, you know, like, you know, we see Meryl Streep like randomly tipping down the stairs, even when she's like sober. So, you know, like bizarre things like that, but like Shirley MacLaine seems to be handling everything extremely well, despite however much she's drinking. What I looked at it like this was she needed to, drink to feel like whatever persona she's trying to portray to the world like that let her be herself between that and the totally, wig and yeah, the yeah. makeup and so on and so forth that like she would get loaded but when she's loaded is she's when she's her her best self in her mind interesting and she, yeah and the the problem i have with this is so we have a moment on the film set where she hears the director talking about her eating too much yeah and having cellulite and which like was, it was a little i mean like again this is something that maybe happened to carrie fisher but it felt a little over the top yeah with her character because like <laughs> i didn't feel like a lot of the things they were saying like actually applied although i realized there's that like hollywood 10 pounds you know what i mean like yeah. where the hollywood perception of what somebody looks like is often much different and worse than what normal people so i guess you can let that slide <laughs> so between that then the stuff with jack and the stuff with the manager and then this boiling point that hits with her mother. But the, the way that these things happened, I didn't care. I didn't, <laughs> I honestly didn't care. No. Yeah. And we've on, long since lost you at this point in the movie. <laughs> and on top of that, I'm still trying I, to hang on at this point, but I know you've, you've, you've like um, fallen to the wayside. <laughs> on top of that though, I feel like, they didn't feel as impactful. Like even when she finds out, finds out that all of her money is gone. Yeah. 
she doesn't seem to care all that much. I mean, it, it like, hurts her, but like, yeah, but it's again one of these things that just doesn't kind of get mentioned again. <laughs> it, it, it's like, and and I looked at it like this. Okay, the, this is going to sound kind of, I don't know how it's going to sound, but like she's already wealthy from a wealthy family. She loses all of her own income, but she's still living with her mom. She still has a job. She's still making movies. She's still a recognizable face. Whereas like someone, a normal person struggling with addiction wouldn't have landed a job that quick, wouldn't have a rich parent to take care of them. And I just feel like I didn't feel sympathetic because I'm like, she's still got a job where she's probably got a pretty decent contract where that money's coming in soon for this movie that she's working on. And I just didn't care because because she didn't seem to care all that much. Yeah. I mean, again, it's one of these like plot beats that kind of came and went. And I think, again, it's just them. Like, I I honestly feel like they tried to cram this movie with as many like this sort of thing happens in Hollywood (laughs) sort of things. And I think if there's another version of why this movie feels unrelatable to your common moviegoer or maybe um, your male movie goer i don't know i feel like i can't necessarily relate to a a daughter mother relationship necessarily and then i certainly kind of can't relate to these pitfalls of the hollywood actress necessarily um so there's little things like that 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 are a little harder to really latch on to without like really seeing that human moment of this addiction is crippling and i can't get out from under it or i just lost all of my money and now i'm homeless and I, I i have to restart it's missing those moments where you're like oh god this is like completely awful and even though they kind of did these like bang 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 terrible things i think the thing i feel the worst about is how she was treated by jack but yeah. again i that doesn't a hundred also percent feel earned because again that relationship seems to happen within like a day and a half time you know it's not like she's been with him for months and months and just found out that this has been happening on a like a really long or i don't know maybe again maybe the movie did some little time jump and i wasn't aware of it didn't seem like it was like a long-term relationship that she was losing here he he, didn't have any stakes in the game (laughs) you know he sees her on a friday he picks her up on a saturday night she finds out on monday that he was having sex with somebody else the same day and i'm like but what? All right. Yeah, I, I think you've got I, the time I, scale right there. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's one of these things where the one thing they do right in this movie that I really respected and appreciated is they showcased because Shirley MacLaine's playing, you know, an older actress. Meryl Streep's playing a actress on her on her way for a comeback from being great to having an addiction to becoming great again. Hopefully, they do play a good portion of it where they're showcasing the challenges of being an older female actress in Hollywood. And I would have loved to see more about that in the film because, you know, oftentimes now in award shows, they talk about the ageism in Hollywood and the challenges of actresses getting jobs as they get older. And then they have, you know, the ability to create jobs. I would have loved to know more about that in the film. And I feel like they only cover it in a few moments. Yeah. And again, it's not to beat a dead horse. I feel like and you that's the up and down of this whole thing is they just never quite 
land on what exactly it is they want to really focus in on. Anyway, this is the point in the movie where, as you're saying, you're feeling that way. I'm probably feeling to an extent the same. And I was roped back in with the ADR scene with Gene Hackman. Ah, uh, yes. Probably I one think of the best this scenes is in the film. I, no, I honest to goodness think this is my absolute favorite part of the movie. And I felt this is like a really redeeming, great just moment. Like I, I like anything else about the rest of this movie, whether I liked it, whether I hated it, whether anything else. This was a really, really nice scene. I was yeah. really into this. I really liked the fact that he kind of was rooting for her and he wasn't the beginning of the movie too, but rooting for her, he kind of like takes her in and he's like, see what you can do. Like, you don't need to be somebody else, like whatever, you know? And, and like, it just had such a great positive feeling. And the way the two of them played in that scene together, I don't know, like something about it felt separate from the rest of the movie. And, and just like, I don't know. I, 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 if I saw none of the rest of the movie and I saw that scene, I'd have been happy. It was just, something really really great about that one that really spoke to me for whatever the reason and you know what's funny about it is they almost play as if they were in some sort of relationship prior and he still loves her in a way well, in, in, there's or, or, that, or they have the loving working relationship well together. i was gonna say he's almost like the father figure that she's that missing she have yeah yeah that like you know her dad is out of the picture that the stepdad is whatever the stepdad is and, you know, he kind of is like the one to be able to kind of come in. And the mother has you know, obviously her issues or whatever, too. He's like this kind of stable force in the movie who also happens to be like essentially her boss as well, you know, in the directing capacity. Um, that's like, I'm rooting for you. I want you to be sober. Look what you can do. I know you can be better. You know, like, I'm going to make sure things go well for you from here on out. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, it just it was a it was a good redeeming character because I feel like there's a lot of other characters that are either too one off or too unlikable or or whatever the reason is that you you don't care about them or relate to them that like where the movie started off with him and her and like sort of setting things running it kind of starts to coast to an end with right. this scene as well and it felt like a really nice close to that loop that she's back fixing her initial mistake on on the movie that she messed up and she's going to get back into it and things like that it's a good bookend for the film yeah. and i was wondering if it was george lucas that could be although i don't know if i see george as being <laughs> that sentimental of a human being <laughs> i feel like he'd be like man okay carry on no space underwear allowed okay <laughs> That's a pretty good impression there. I like. You ever it. catch that story? That's one of my favorite Carrie Fisher George Lucas things. Is that like she showed up on set and he told her, "You can't have a bra or any underwear on." And she's like, "Why?" And he's like, "There's no underwear in space." And I'm like, "What a George Lucas thing to, to say and do." That is a pretty George <laughs> Lucas thing to say. But it's <laughs> the only reason why I mention this is because, like, again, a lot of these actors that pop up in this movie have some sort of six degrees of separation to George Lucas or Star Wars something like that and I was just curious like I don't know maybe it's but, true yeah I just don't know if I could pin that level of of responsibility on on him he seems a little too Kermit to, to 
<laughs> to be that type of person. <laughs> that is an maybe I'm off. I mean, you know, I'm Mr. Star Wars. Reference. Thank you, George, for Star Wars. But yeah, I don't know. He just uh, I don't know if I could put that to, to him, but maybe I don't know. I mean, she's worked with other directors that are, are you know, that type of people. Who knows? Who knows where it came yeah, from? Who, who, <laughs> it, it could also be an amalgam of a couple of different directors type of a thing. Who knows? But so it's, uh, let's bring this thing into a close. So obviously the mother wraps the car around the tree ends up with you're like is the mother going to be dead or is she going to be dying no she's got a small contusion they go to the hospital they make up the <laughs> the grandmother gets kicked out of the hospital room the two other men oddly stay there <laughs> yeah he finally like, speaks <laughs> you know like yeah, yeah. They, they stay in the room but but yeah I, that i didn't get like why did no one else leave but the two of them or like, whatever I, I at this point i was semi checked out of the movie because again like you said you know, she doesn't really seem all that hurt in the hospital other than you see her without her makeup on, without her fancy clothes, without her wig on. And I was like, does she have cancer? Like, you know, what? why is she got thinning hair? What's that all about? I wanted to know more about yeah, that. Yeah, you know, just- I think it becomes that like they're finally peeling away to who the person actually is, you know? And like, I know this is such a dopey reference. You're going to laugh. But it's like at the end of Hook, when Dennis Hoffman loses his wig and you're like, Oh, hooks like an old man. And all the kids are like, hooks an old man. You know? And it's like, it's like, it's like that peeling away moment where all of a sudden like this over the top, larger than life character or human being comes back down to earth. And I think that's the moment that they're able to finally then relate to each other on, you know, she finally is able to be like, I, I think I'm jealous of you. You know, I'm sorry, blah, 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 you know, whatever. And they kind of have like that final, like making up moment. I don't know how, earned it is outside of like that both of them have had a near death scare now so maybe they're now both in that same sort of headspace that they need to make amends with each other again it because they never like completely fell onto one point or another yes she has a crummy relationship with her mother but again like the inciting incident is that like her mom happened to get into a car accident and now like in like four seconds she's worried enough that her mother got hurt or killed that like it's enough to be forgiving but, more so of her i don't know i mean like here's the thing stranger the, things but, have happened <laughs> here's the thing about the car accident though when meryl Streep talks to the police officer they said she was drunk we had to book her but like she's not in the hospital bed with a handcuff on they they don't pay off like what happened to the mother did she have to do jail time did she have to do like it just she just comes out of the hospital like I'm a celebrity. Here I am. People yeah. love me. And they don't pay off the fact that literally one minute ago, they just said <laughs> we had to book her for driving, you know, intoxicated and crashing into a tree like nothing. It just kind of goes away. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say about that sort of a thing is despite if he said we had to book her and maybe he meant some version of that. It's not like a um, it's not like she injured anybody or it was like something completely out of control. I think that's where like she would get like the DUI summons and have to show up at a later point in time. It's not like she would necessarily like be in a jailhouse at the end of the movie or something like that. So the fact that she's in a a, a hospital bed, jail, jail cell, whatever. I mean, like they have their, their moment and, 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 you know, it kind of comes to a conclusion with, you know, her on the set of her film, which again, what the heck is this 
film that you know because like it starts off with like these colombian drug lords pulling her aside and ends up with her like singing in a country bar i guess no it's a different movie <laughs> is it a different, a different movie, movie they ever now okay Be- because gene hackman says when they're doing the adr it's like hey i've got another project oh, okay perfect for you and she's like, well, I'm not really ready to dive into anything new yet. He's like, oh, you got six months that we're going to start shooting. And this is supposed to be six months later there or maybe even nine months later when they're wrapping on the film and the final final take of the film. Yeah. Um, on a funny little filmmaker note on that final scene, um, do you think filmmakers still get those cranes they get to ride on? If not, it's a shame. They really should. <laughs> I I would think some filmmakers, maybe like the Christopher Nolans of the world, <laughs> you know, will will be sitting up with the DP on the crane. There was a great commercial a few years back. It, where, I think it was Mastercard or something where like Wes Anderson is on one of those, and like he has like a bunch of like does flyaways. He's like, oh, I needed those. Like. <laughs> Like it was a great commercial, and I I I don't know why that sticks in my head, but I do love those little director cranes. That seems like so 1930s and and onward. It was very old Hollywood. I loved seeing it. The soundstage was like going up the belfry in in Batman. Like it just kept going. They kept panning through all the crew, yeah, watching her in some serious short shorts. Yeah, and and they get way way up to the balcony. And, and somehow Shirley MacLaine is way, way up at the top when not 10 seconds earlier, she's on the ground talking to the rehab roommate <laughs> and she like flew up the up this giant peak to watch this closing number of music that she's singing. That's a good point. I missed that one, too. And again, it's one of those things where she's singing live in this film that Gene Hackman is directing, but in Hollywood. That would probably have been dubbed over. Like she would have probably sang it yes, silent. And the uh, the bar crowd is making noise, whereas they would have been completely quiet. Com- things like that. Quiet. That would have been yeah. yeah. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. So that's just Hollywood stuff. Yes. Yeah. Overall, I found this movie to be a subdued experience, um, but with strong moments. I feel okay. like that's where I land at the end of the day. Yeah, it was fine. I'll give it. A B minus, <laughs> you know, it's it's not bad. And I think what's very redeeming about it is Shirley MacLaine's role is so good in moments of the film. Like when she's making the smoothie and then pours a whole bottle of vodka in it. It's so funny and it makes me laugh, but also cringe at the same time. I'm like, wow, that's, that, that's a bold <laughs> statement right there. And then just all the cameos make it very entertaining. I just. I guess. Meryl Streep, though she's so great in so many things, I don't think she fully knew how to play this because, like I said, I do think this was years of one story clustered into what would have taken place in six to eight months of time period. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have like an equal and opposite take. So I, I am not the biggest Meryl Streep fan in the world. And again, that's really not to say because I think she's a bad actress or something. It's more like, my film interests and the film she's in don't often coincide. Um, but, you know, I actually thought she did a decent job with this. Again, I think the writing is up and down. So I, I think that's that's kind of essentially where like you're coming at with that as well. But 
I thought she lent kind of a, a human take to it. Um, and I, I felt like she was doing her best Carrie Fisher impression for better or worse. Um, you know, like I feel like it, it, it kind of like, again, it, it was a character that was all over the place, but I feel like that's fine because I think this is a very, not disturbed, but, but somebody like a, a woman that just like, doesn't know where she wants her life to be. And she's coming out of some weird things. And I feel like she floundered through that sort of space. So I think she did a good job with that. Um, I, I think she's playing a broken person. Well, yeah, but, but like, I look at it as this should have been Meryl Streep, Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. Personality versus the time. I don't know. It just, I don't know. Something didn't sit well with me. And I think most of it because I felt like I couldn't tell what age she was playing. But overall, I do love the, you know, behind the scenes backlot stuff of Hollywood and, and old Hollywood in particular, which was kind of cool. Yeah, uh, I, I do. I do really enjoy certain scenes like when she does the fires, the blanks at Dennis Quaid. I love that moment. I thought it was really funny and really clever. I was surprised that like nobody called the cops and didn't, you know, Hey, we just heard gunfire in this guy's house. What's going on? You know, like Yeah. I mean, the the funny thing for me, and again, like I said, I've read a couple of Carrie Fisher's books, and when her books are good is when she's being humorous. I find when she's being a little bit more serious or a little bit more dramatic to just not be as interesting. And I think that's where this movie lands as well. You know, dramedy, whatever you want to call it. You know, the drama portions for me don't land. I don't ever feel completely hooked on like, oh, my God, this is like heart wrenching. Right. I don't Whereas the parts that are funny, I did like laugh out loud. Like the parts yeah. that were funny were funny, like point blank. Um, and that's from a multitude of different characters in, in the movie, you know. Um, and a funny thing, actually, while I was... Um, looking around one of the things that popped up and i think i found this on wikipedia or something when i was looking at how the reception of the movie went they actually had roger ebert's um chicago sun times <laughs> quote uh which was um what's disappointing about the movie is that it never really delivers on the subject of recovery from addiction there are some incomplete dimly seen unrealized scenes in the rehab center and then the sultry talk about uh, off-screen aa meetings the film is preoccupied with gossip. We're encouraged to wonder how many parallels there are between Streep and McLean characters in their originals, Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Postcards from the Edge contains too much good writing and too uh, too many good performances to be a failure, but its heart is not in the right place. And I think that really actually summed up how I was feeling. Like, I really Same. almost... Yeah, like, again, like, if you want to go the route that, like, this is really about her and her mother and an abusive relationship between the two maybe give up on the drug end and really just focus on that abusive relationship. Otherwise, if you're going to start the movie off that she's got drug problems and she nearly dies and needs her stomach stump, stomach stump, <laughs> stomach pumped, <laughs> um, stick with that, you know, like really dive in a little bit more on like how that addiction is, is messing with her career and her relationships and life. I, I don't know. It just like, it, it felt like two, two large things to tackle. And then they never really fixed on one or the other. And so therefore right. your heart kind of didn't go into one of the other. So like, like 
so here's the thing that we missed in the beginning of the of the podcast. So she goes into rehab. When she's getting released from rehab, she's released into her mother's custody. Right. And worth her, mentioning. Her, her, yes. Her her mother is her custodian and has to keep an eye on her and everything. A responsible but, adult. <laughs> which right. Is a responsible kind of adult. Funny, as it turns out. And the thing that I thought was missing is they're not together enough in the in that beginning. She just she goes from release from rehab, home with mother for more or less a day to back to work. They should have spent more time with them in the house together, seeing mom, drinking, yeah. partying, hanging out, but also trying to be the mother to Meryl Streep's character to keep her in the house. No, it's true. And, you know, there's there's other movies of these sorts where it's either a movie about substance abuse or about a bad relationship with a parent or things like that. But I feel like this never hits the major moments that some of those other films do, where you have these kind of like complete breakdowns or I guess like earned moments where you're like, all right, I can see now why these two are the way they are and, and that they've come to this reconciliation or, or that the character is so, so struggling with the rehab and the pills and, and the parent is not a good influence or, or whatever the case might be. It just, it just flies so lightly through all these different topics that like, you never can really sink your teeth into any one of them enough to like really feel for the character and what she's going through. I feel like. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, I think we have completely said as much as we can about postcards from the edge and then some. So let us know what you thought of our review of postcards from the edge. We're usually available on our socials. I've been a little lax on them of late because uh, real life has been getting in the way, but (laughs) we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on our review. Um, from this month so feel free to hit us up it's box office 30 you can find us on twitter and facebook and instagram and um, we are box office 30 on twitter and facebook and 30 t-h-i-r-t-y on instagram i'm gonna still one of these days try and get that 30 account (laughs) because some some person who is just sitting on it um has has not used it in a few years and i I think we should take it (laughs) i think so too and also as always, we want to thank the Retro Network for hosting us on wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you guys so much for supporting us and, and helping us promote this show. We really, really love you guys. Thank you so much. And don't forget, there's going to be a really fun Halloween event through the Retro Network that we're all submitting some sort of fun segments and, and snippets to. So check that out as well. Definitely. And make sure you. Um... Check out the other podcasts of the Retro Network. Um, They're all really great, all really fun. If you like this one, you're going to find plenty more to like amongst all those other great shows and and the creators of them. And and if you like movies, Adam from my show Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, is making me do a review of Darkman coming (laughs) up soon. And I am... None too pleased. I am. I, don't wanna... I am really looking forward to that particular. I'm really <laughs> not. Oh, <laughs> we, we've been putting it off for six months, and I'm like, all right. He's like, oh, we got to do it now. We're coming up on Halloween. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> it, I literally said to him today, 
It's like ripping off a band-aid. It goes, well, his face is covered in bandages. <laughs> oh, boy. He got you on that one. He did. All right. Well, join us next month. We will be doing the October movie, which is Steven Seagal's Mark for Death, which I am looking forward to some 90s Seagal schlock. <laughs> oh, me too. After I postcards. can't wait. <laughs> Where this is going to probably be about an hour and a half, that may be four hours long. <laughs> All right. Thank you, friends. We will see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.